From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with pastors Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Salutations. Greetings. It's been a couple weeks, but we are back at it with the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and I want to jump right in with a specific question. Scripture continually emphasizes Christ's sonship with God the Father, as well as our own sonship when we are in Christ. What would you say are the main characteristics which represent this father-son relationship, and how do you, as a pastor, carry them over in your role as spiritual father of the people you're ministering to. So in your pastoral role, where do you see yourself embodying this idea of spiritual father the most? What are those situations like? Uh, How does masculinity play into that? I want to really kind of get into this idea of being a spiritual father and how does that relate to the sonship of Christ and God the Father? Okay. Yeah, let me me start by saying um, when it comes to when it comes to um, this dynamic between father and sons, we carry baggage into this. All of us do. Yes. Because if you were like me, and I was fortunate to have a godly father who I think loved me appropriately and led me appropriately, wasn't perfect by any means, but it also that helps shape my perspective on what healthy sonship and fathership looks like For fatherhood. Sure. And so the opposite is true too, though. If you had an unhealthy father, if you had a, a father that was not a believer, maybe wasn't even in the picture, that's going to shape your view of what that looks like. And so I want to be careful how we approach this. Cause some of you that are listening to this, maybe your relationship wasn't ideal. Right. And as a result, you struggle to see God as a good father and you struggle to understand the, the nature of Jesus's relationship with his heavenly father and what that looked like. So let me, I just wanted to frame it yeah. with that kind of, can I add to that just a bit? Yeah. So, um, so are you saying then that it would be a good first step to establish what the archetype of fatherhood is according to the Bible and the way to do that would be, so we could say, okay, well, you look at like Christ being the son of the son of God, Mm -hmm. the father, but it seems to me like the way we would try to figure out what that fatherhood would look like would be to look at the way that Christ interacts with his disciples as a spiritual father, because we don't really know too much about the, um, about the fatherhood of God the Father. Yeah, we can infer some yeah, things, right. but but yeah, we don't see it directly. But yeah, okay. I think I think that that's a good place to start. And I think the unfortunate thing is, um, well, our experience frames how we view Scripture and how we interpret Scripture. Mm-hmm. As as communicators, especially, we, we can be in danger of that. And so, yeah, I think it's really important to start with the word and go, okay, I think I know what a good father is, but let, let the word inform my worldview mm-hmm. instead of vice versa. Oh yeah. That's right. a good point. Even if you have a good father, like yeah. you might think you know what a good father is, yeah. right? Right. Well, and so, you know, uh, so maybe it'd be helpful for us to, to refer to it in terms of a mentor, right? Because even if you, even if you had a great dad, like in your, uh, professional life, you recognize. Oh, you know, I I might I need somebody to help me to navigate this to to be successful, right? Uh, or if on the flip side of that, if you didn't have the greatest dad, or even grew up absent of a dad, you mm-hmm. there's still a recognition. Okay, I need someone who's further along on this journey, who can help me to navigate this, to help me to be successful. And so when we talk about spiritual fatherhood, that's really what we're talking about is having someone uh, who can mentor you, who can help you to navigate the journey well. Uh, And of course, then it is helpful for us to begin to define what does that look like? Why does the scripture talk about that in terms of fatherhood? And and what are the implications for us? Yeah. So I read an interesting um, statistic the other day. Um, It was that if you're a parent and you have children, by the time your children grow up and let's say, assume they move out at 18, 
by the time they move out at 18, you will have spent, no matter how often they visit you, you will have spent 97% of the time of all the time you're going to spend with them will be complete by yep. the time, by they the move time out. they're 18. And yeah. so that that's, that's plays to your point about this idea of mentorship, because if we get too bogged down in the, uh, the human parent child understanding of fatherhood, then, um, you know, we're dealing with uh, an idea of fatherhood that applies to people as they're growing up. So like as they're in their, their young kids, their teens, adolescents, all that stuff. But when we become adults, that stuff changes, even mm-hmm. with your own parents, it changes. But so it, it would change across the board, even with mentors. So I yeah. think it is useful to be careful with the terminology there so that we don't, st- we don't automatically recourse to, okay, when I think of fatherhood, I think of myself as a child and mm-hmm. that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so one of the first things I think of when I think of, um, being a spiritual father, um, that parallels with being an actual dad is just intimacy because I can't be a good father to my actual children if, if there's not a level of intimacy with them and, you know, affection's part of that. But, uh, the people that I think consider me a spiritual father, there is a level of intimacy with them that I have that, um, that we can be vulnerable together. We can share things that maybe I wouldn't share with other people, you know? Um, so to me, um, uh, I think there's, I hear a lot of people talking about spiritual fatherhood and things like that. And, and the, the streams we're in. Um, but what's required of that is to me, one of the first things is intimacy. You've got to, you've got to, be vulnerable. You've yeah. got to, you know, let people into your personal life in a way that maybe is a little uncomfortable. So that's, that's a big one for me. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about is like, I, I am not a spiritual father for every person in our congregation. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I don't even think that's possible. I don't think I have the capacity mm-hmm. for that because of the intimacy that that requires. Now, it doesn't mean that I, I don't have some influence in their life. And it, you know, in fact, if if I don't, then I'm 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 really not doing that great a job as a pastor, right? <laughs> um, but but that there, but because of the intimacy that's required in in this idea of fatherhood or mentorship, uh, you you can't do that with every person in your congregation, which is why it's so important when we talk about leadership for us to talk about replicating ourselves yeah. and reproducing mm-hmm. leaders. And that's really, to me, if I'm talking about what it means for me to be a spiritual father, that's what I'm talking about, is my ability to pour into and reproduce myself into other people so that they then might become fathers as well, and they then might become fathers as well, and and really multiply my effectiveness across a spectrum that I, in a way that I never could yeah. if I didn't walk in in close relationship with the men around me well um and i mean you lead right into a second part to me of being a spiritual father uh is legacy um because i tell people all the time no matter how big summit church may be or no matter how how impactful we might be i think the greatest legacy i may ever have as a minister is my the two girls that you know live in my home abby and emma because what they do in ministry, I think, will far su- uh, um, surpass what what I've done, um, and that's my hope. That's my desire right. too, right? Like I don't, I want them to have more success and to win more souls, and you know, I want that for them. And so I think the same is true for us as spiritual fathers. Like um, I think if we're not a real spiritual father if we want people to succeed less than we do. <laughs> like, I want you to be really successful as long as you're always sub- subservient to me. Right. Um, as long as you don't steal my glory or, you know, and I think sometimes we feel that way. It feels competitive, but a, a true spiritual father is going to be open-handed and generous and want legacy for their for mm. their spiritual children. It seems to me that a crucial piece here would have to be the introduction of agape or this mm-hmm. just this purest form of self-sacrificial love. And yeah. so far as a person who views you as a spiritual father must be able to view you as someone who they can uh, present as close to an untrammeled view of themselves to you as possible without mm-hmm. the fear that you're going to abandon them as a consequence of that vulnerability. Yeah, And because that's the way that it, it seems like in good, uh, you know, parent-child relationships it's like that like it's like okay i can you know i can really screw up but at least i still have my mom and dad yeah like um, (laughs) 
So this is, I'm just revealing how nerdy I am. And this is like to the depths. So I've been on a Star Wars kick lately. And I, I mean, I grew up on Star Wars, right? Like original Star Wars trilogy. And um, this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. Anyway, so um, I had a friend was like, you've never watched the Clone Wars, the cartoons? And I'm like, uh, no. Because I'm, I'm in my mid-40s now. <laughs> I feel like I will not, you know, I don't feel like my pride will survive that. And so, but I saw on Disney Plus, they had the, uh, they had like the, the highlights, like where you could yeah, watch, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. here's the, here's the, the, the quintessential. Essential Clone yeah, yeah. Wars. Yeah. So I went through and I watched however many episodes it was and I watched them all. And, um, but one of the things you saw in that is like, okay, you've got the light side and the dark side. You've got the Jedi and the Sith and the Sith there's always two there's that's the rule right and the lower one will always betray the you know like <laughs> they're always in competition it, it's not about self-sacrifice it's not about helping the other succeed it's about hey we're working together because it's mutually beneficial but at some point i'm going to usurp you yeah at some point you're going to get yours and that feels like a make-believe thing but if we're going to be honest i've been environments like that where hey i'm we're, i'm tolerating you right now because this is mutually beneficial but the second you start getting more headlines than i do i mean this is saul and david right right like hey saul's killed his thousands david's David, killed his yeah. ten thousands and so uh, i think unfortunately we see that in church world where it's like yeah i want to be a spiritual father i want to i want to raise people up but the second they start being too successful then because it really isn't about building the kingdom; it's about building my kingdom. And, yeah, that's uh, that's that's a great insight because it it becomes completely backwards at that point, you know, because it becomes about you, and it's when it comes time for you to remove yourself, and um, you know, you we we so many pastors will talk about replicating themselves and others, and you know, disciples making disciples, yeah. and the idea of it is nice, but if you make enough disciples to where you're no longer needed, <laughs> then yeah. it's like. Uh-oh. Um, and so I think that that's probably, I mean, insecurity can certainly lead to that. Mm-hmm. Um, this desire, this need to feel like you're the the top yeah. guy. And there are examples of where guys have done that well. Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, in, in the in the church world, there are, you know, there are examples of pastors who have created succession plans and raised up the next leader behind them. And they've done that well and they've transitioned out. And, uh, and then there are just as many instances where you see yeah. guys who just, they when they don't do it well, I'll just say it that way. They raise people up, but then they never transition out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I was thinking about uh, like Lee Kreischer over at Amplify Church here in Pittsburgh. Um, I think Lee did a great job. He was essentially the founding pastor. And when they transitioned to Jason Howard, um, Lee, like they had a long runway. And yeah. Lee basically said, what are the things we need to change? you know, after I'm gone and Lee made all the changes and Lee took all the bullets, all the people right, that are like, I'm right. leaving. Cause you're changing the worship style. Lee was like, great go. Yeah. Cause he would rather take that bullet than Jason. Why? Because he was a spiritual father. He yeah. wasn't just, it wasn't a positional thing. It wasn't about, um, this is my church. You can't change it. Or, you, you know, you're going to make this change and you'll take the heat for it. That's yeah. selfishly motivated. But yeah. The spiritual father says, I'm going to take the bullet for you. I'm going to stand in the line of fire. And yeah. I love that. Well, and it, it expresses not only Lee's concern for Jason and his love for Jason mm-hmm. and wanting Jason to succeed as the next pastor, but it also, you know, indicates his love for the church. Yeah. Because if, if he just takes a hike Right, and then Jason makes all of these changes. Well, then, whether it's true or not, the perception would have been, I don't like Jason's leadership mm-hmm. because he's made, he's changed all these things that I love about mm-hmm. Amplify, and then the church hurts and Jason hurts, and you know, and so like there is, there's not just a there's not just a a reward for us as leaders to raise up the people behind us. It it's about you know protecting the church being good shepherds mm-hmm. and and ensuring that you know that this thing's going to continue to to prosper yeah in my absence yeah that's man that's such a I, I feel like that bears repeating so if you have a church that you know is going to go through a transition like you're stepping out of leadership you've come to the end of your road but um you the, the next guy up you know that he's going to need changes 
it is your job to make those changes because never underestimate the power of coattails and the power mm-hmm. of credibility or the lack of credibility, all of that stuff. It's so hard to overcome a lack of credibility. And yeah. so if you have a credible leader at a church and, you know, obviously you have board meetings and those sorts of things about this kind of thing. But once you know what needs to be changed, the fact that you're willing to take the sacrifice of making those changes yourself in preparation for the next guy mm-hmm. is just a brilliant church yeah. building strategy well, as far the as un- I'm concerned. The unfortunate reality is <laughs> that there is a thing inside of us that draws some satisfaction from the idea that an organization might yeah. not succeed once I'm gone. Oh, they needed me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the attendance has gone down since I'm gone. Yeah. So I must be really important. Right. And we have to do everything in our power to fight against that urge. We have to take it to the God. We have to lay it down. We have to, I mean, you know, part of being a disciple, part of being a follower of Jesus is learning to die to ourselves. Yeah. And as pastors, we are not immune to that, right? That, in fact, we should be leading in that regard. And so that means that we have to recognize those places in us that where that, you know, where our flesh is drawing, you know, pleasure from things that aren't godly. And, and that's not always an overt thing. It could be that that kind of subversive thing in yeah. us then we have to we have to recognize it and we have to kill it man i think jim collins talks about um a level five leader is one whose organization is successful after you leave that you never really know how good a lead you, you are till after you leave and if your organization improves then you're actually yeah. that is evidence that you're actually a good leader yeah um that the top level of leadership is a level five leader and you don't ever ever actually know if that's who you are until, until you're, gone. you're gone. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. So one of the pieces I think that's important to understand in order to motivate yourself to uh, not give in to those temptations, like Todd, like how you were outlining about this idea of, well, this place won't survive without me. I think one of the things that is crucial to understand there is that you actually can't outperform your legacy in a way that, you know, you guys had mentioned great pastors who, Uh, managed their transitions really well and managed to be spiritual fathers really well. Mm -hmm. And then you also, I I don't think you mentioned the names of them, but you said that there were some pastors and then you kind of laughed and because you know, and and these guys might've been great pastors. I'll start. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, Oh my God. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, So so some of these guys may have been fantastic communicators and viewed as excellent pastors while they were pastoring, but, but they didn't pay attention to their legacy, and so their performance wasn't enough to build the legacy, and then they couldn't outrun the bad legacy once it was there. Okay, so I, I think this ties in, uh, and I had to look it up to make sure I knew where it was. But in First Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And he draws this delineation between teachers and leaders and fathers. And the reality is it is way easier to be a teacher and a leader than it is to be a father. Yeah, It takes a lot less work, a lot less energy because it takes less of you. Um, because you're not risking yourself. If, if I'm just a teacher, I'm just a hired gun getting up on the weekend, preaching a sermon. Great. Like they either like it or they don't. And I'm going to hone my craft and my skill and all that kind of stuff. But man, the second I start fathering people, it requires me to be vulnerable. It requires my heart to be invested in that. And that is hard work. Um, And so Paul is saying, hey, you've got plenty of teachers and guides, but you don't have enough fathers. And for us, the, the people that aspire to be spiritual fathers, we have to understand there's a cost to that. And so it's going to take more of us. But the the result of that is when we're spiritual fathers, we'll leave a legacy and we mm-hmm. might be forgotten, but that work will endure. Um, where the other side, man, if I'm just a good communicator, they're going to lose my sermon CDs, right? They're <laughs> going to forget what I've said in two days, not even in two days, in 20 minutes on the drive home, yeah. they will forget what I say. But if I'm a spiritual father for, for somebody then I'm investing in their lives and there's going to be long-term fruit from that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, you know, talking about that cost, like if I'm, you know, 
I'm a dad, right? If one of my daughters calls me and her car has broken down, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. Right? You're going to call me to go take care of no oh you're gonna you're gonna okay yeah yeah, exactly. yeah you wouldn't yeah, right okay, never right. Mind. i was confused sorry <laughs> yeah and so like so that's part of the cost of being a spiritual father yeah is that number one we've developed the kind of relationship that when when their life breaks down they call us mm-hmm. and then we also have the kind of heart toward them that that doesn't say i'm gonna farm this out to somebody else this is too yeah. messy but it says hey i'll be right there you know, mm-hmm. um, and that that means we have to give away our lives, mm-hmm. that we give our lives to people. Man, the, the, the pastors that I look back on in my life who were most influential, they gave me their lives. And they're guys that, look, 30, 40 years later now, I can still call them. Mm-hmm. Today, I could call them. And they would drop what they were doing. They would take my call. And if I needed them, they would be there, right? Uh, that's fatherhood. And we have to, like, if, we're, if we want to be spiritual fathers, we have to recognize that's what we're signing up for. And, and I'll say this, too. Uh, I've, I've got some people in my life that I think I'm probably their spiritual father that are much older than I am um, because it's not about – it's not about our age. Right. Um, it's about, well, really, it's about mutual submission in a lot of ways. It's not even about success in ministry or whatever. It's about someone saying, um, hey, I want to be submitted to you. I trust your heart. And it's almost like, you know, when Jesus on the cross said, woman, behold your son, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, hey, now you are going to be mutually submitted to each other. Yeah. And so even with spiritual fatherhood, there's this element of mutual submission where it's like, okay, hey, um, our hearts are going to be yoked together. You know, we're going to we're going to journey together. Um, and uh, so it doesn't matter if you're, you know, 20 or 50 or 70, you know, you can you can be a spiritual father for people older than you or younger than you because uh, it really comes back to our heart. Yeah. So is that your primary selection algorithm when you're trying to decide like who you're going to take this role of in a person's life? Is it is it the mutual submission? Is there some element of reciprocity? Uh, because we, we had discussed how you can't do this for an entire congregation. Like mm-hmm. you can't do this for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And because it takes so much of yourself, because it's so much sacrifice, because it makes you so vulnerable, you have to have some protections in place, right? Like mm-hmm. you can't just you can't just lay yourself open to a thousand people or you'll immediately become unhealthy. And so, um, what does that pro what does that selection process look like for you? Or, or is it just something more like they just really, show up? I don't know if I've ever really thought about it like that. Cause when it, to me, when it comes to like being a spiritual father for somebody, it's more about time. Like, so over a period of time, that's, because uh, mentorship is different in this way. I'll have somebody say, hey, will you be a mentor for me? Okay, what are you asking? Like, what are you looking for specifically? Yeah. So you tell me what you're looking for, and I'll tell you if I can do that. But when it comes to being a spiritual father, it's it's more organic than that to me, at least in my experience. And over time, this relationship is developed. And sometimes it can go from being a mentorship to a spiritual parent. But sometimes that mentorship is just a mentorship and it's just for a season. Right. And that's it. But to me, even like, you know, I think I've talked about John Nuzo is somebody I love deeply, the pastor of Victory Family Church in Cranberry. If you don't know John, go listen to his leadership podcast. He's great. Um, But John is a mentor for me. He's a friend. I love him deeply. I would not consider him a spiritual father, though. Um, Jim Hennessy, um, pastor of Trinity Church in Cedar Hill, Texas, he's a spiritual father for me. And one of the, I've used this line a lot, but to me, the difference between a mentor and a, and a spiritual father is a mentor is somebody I can call anytime and they'll pick up the phone and we'll talk, we can talk. Um, a spiritual father is somebody who will call me at any time. Um, so I don't, Jim will call me just to check on me. Hey, I was thinking about you today. How are you doing? What's going on? Hey, how's this going? Because there's a different level of intimacy there than there is with a mentor. And so for me, as it's developed, a lot of those are organic, that mm-hmm. it's like over time, they kind of self-select in or out, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think I would. that was one of the things that I was thinking as well, is that those people will self-identify, Yeah, honestly, over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, those kind of relationships evolve and grow 
Yeah. Mel, you make a good point that I don't want to gloss over. Um, when you're looking for a spiritual father or a mentor for that matter, it is important to be super clear with that person, that prospective mentor, what your expectation is, even down to the first meetings or, Mm -hmm. you know, like, so say you're getting to know a pastor and you want this person to mentor you and you, you know, when you contact them or their assistant and you want to arrange a meeting, you should say, okay, this is what I want to talk about. It's going to take this amount of time. And this is where I want to do this. Is this possible? Because then, you know, it's not like some of these guys, if they're over larger congregations, like just having an ambiguous ask, Mm -hmm. they probably get a lot of those and then they have to figure out, okay, well, how much, what is this going to take? How much of my schedule do I need to clear for this? Like your chance, your chances of getting the meeting and of piquing the interest of the potential mentor go up a lot. I think whenever you're clear about the expectation and what they're Mm -hmm. getting into, you know, before you ask them to get into it and you just owe it to them in some sense to do that. Like that's kind of what it means to, to respect authority, I think, is like you need to be able to, um, you know, give them a clear definition of what it is that you're asking for before you yeah. ask for it. Yeah, and and I, I will say this too: um, not every door you knock on will be opened, um, and so you just have to be persistent when you're seeking out a mentor, a spiritual father. Um, but I mean, even for us, yeah, I, I pastor a pretty good sized church in Western Pennsylvania. And there is another church that I'm not going to say the name of um, in our region that's a good-sized church, and I cannot get an appointment with a pastor. Um, um, the, the the assistant blocks me every time, and I've asked like three times, like, hey, I'm happy to come to the office. Hey, would – I almost said his name. Would the pastor be willing to grab some coffee? You know, I have no agenda. I would just love to meet and learn from this person, you know, 30 minutes. And the answer is no. Like, well, we'll see. We'll try again. And like, okay. <laughs> so that's just part of it too. Um, it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to have some no's. Uh, but you got to be persistent if that's something you really want. And and I think we all need it. Um, yeah. But do you need it? Do, do you want it bad enough that you will pursue it even if doors are closed? Yeah, I, I agree. Well, and, and alongside that, I mean, I – we can take we can take that personally sometimes if if there's a no, yeah. uh, don't. I mean, maybe that guy's not supposed to be your spiritual father. Right. Maybe that relationship isn't one that you know. I mean, it, trust that the Lord is opening the doors that He wants open and closing the ones yeah. that He wants closed, and uh, and don't don't get too precious about it. Well, and when I was younger, I used to want the spiritual fathers that were like on the covers of magazines and preaching at conferences. And right. if, if I'm going to be honest, it was because I wanted to be that stuff. Yes. And I'm so grateful for the guys God has given me because they pastor two of the incredible churches that a lot of people have never heard of. They're significant. They're making huge impact. And now that I've gotten older, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's actually what I want in my life. I would rather have a church of high impact that nobody's ever heard of outside of our community or outside of our region. Give me that every day of the week. And so I have a much healthier um, a much healthier ecosystem, spiritual ecosystem around me than yeah. I would have if God would have given me what I wanted 15 or 20 years ago. Because uh, I would have had rock star pastors that maybe weren't even living for Jesus. Right. <laughs> so anyway. This this raises, a, 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 I think, an important question that's not even in the prepared questions for this. But um, this, one of the things I've heard, Mel, I think I've heard you say this, and I know I've heard Kim say this um, at our staff meetings. Um, the idea is I'm so grateful and thankful that God didn't give me what I thought I wanted yeah. when I was oh, man. 30, you yeah. know, and, and that he waited until I'm where I'm at now before he get, he's given me more. Oh, so I want to know, like, why is that? Because I think that for young leaders, it's like, it's hard for them to see until they get to that age and they can look back. Yeah. And so if you can just so articulate that as clearly Todd as possible. At that age now? That yeah. You're saying? men of a certain age. <laughs> Yeah. Do you do you have something? Well, you, one of the things that comes to mind is that it, I, I remember hearing Timothy Keller say, uh, "Your fifty-year-old self will view your twenty-five-year-old self in the same way that your twenty-five-year-old self viewed your five-year-old self." Mm-hmm. Right? We continue to learn. We continue to have. You know, we we have the uh, the the advantage of hindsight. 
you know, in, and so we, in in the throes of the moment, we don't have that. And so part of it is just that, just the natural progression of life where you look back and you go, oh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see everything that was going on. I didn't see the forest for the trees. And so some of it is just that, just that natural thing. Uh, some of it is that we are prone to think that we need things for fulfillment outside of Jesus. And it's only as we grow in relationship with Christ that those things begin to fall away. And if the Lord were to give us those things, even if they on the surface look good, right? Like it, people, people, you know, from the outside, it looks really good if I've got a massive platform and people are impressed with that. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's going to be good for my heart, mm-hmm. right? But we don't always know that. And, and so I think that's why you hear that so often. And for me, that's the thing that at my age now, I'm able to look back and go, thank you, Lord that you spared me from that because that would not have been good for my heart and it would not have formed Christ in me which no matter how big a platform I might have had what does it gain what you know is it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul and it would not have been good for my soul it would not have been good for my heart and so you know I'm thankful that the Lord knew what was good for my soul and he gave me that well, and I've, I've used this analogy from the platform before, but um, we've got people, and probably if you're a pastor listening to this, you do too. You've got people in your church that pray for things um, that God's not going to give it to them because he knows that that will pull their affection from him yeah. and not draw them toward him. And so I've used the the example of the person who prays for the boat. Right. God, give me a boat and I'll be able to entertain people on it. And God knows, knows if I give you a boat, you're never coming to church again. Yeah. You know, you'll come to church for three months in the winter and that's going to be it. Uh, so I'm not going to give you a boat because it's going to pull your affections away from me. And we like to spiritualize it in, in church world and say, God, give me a bigger platform so I can glorify you. But I think in the same way, God's like, if I give you a bigger platform, it's going to pull your affection away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you're going to rely less on me and more on your talent and more on your own ability. And, um, and so, yeah, looking back, oh man, um, when I came to summit, um, I, I was leaving a big church. I had a lot of responsibility and, um, and I was open to going anywhere. I would have gone to literally, I would have gone to a church of a hundred cause I just said, God, I want whatever you want. Yeah. And I meant that sincerely. But I was interviewing with a very large church. It was a church of uh, about 10,000 on the weekend for their lead pastor position. And I, um, and I wanted it bad. And <laughs> it was like that or Summit Church in Indiana, PA. And just, I'm being honest with you, I wanted that church because it was already multi-site. I could have, I already had commitments from like six of my staff in Oklahoma City that I was like, hey, I'm interviewing with this church. Take a look at it. Would you be interested in coming with me? I was going to be able to bring my staff with me. So my team, my people, we called it the dream team. I'm not kidding. And um, and so they were excited. I was excited. And then they went with another guy. And their church is doing great. Um, and I didn't feel like I settled for Summit Church at all. I felt like it was the right thing for us. But I couldn't bring my people with me. We didn't have the budget to bring one person extra on staff, let alone five or six. Um, and I'm so grateful that we didn't get that big church. Um, would it have been better for my ego? Sure. I would have looked great. My friends would have been impressed for about 10 minutes. Um, all those things. But at the end of the day, God knew better what was good for me and what was good for his kingdom than, than I did. Um, and brought us to summit and thank God he did. Um, Lord, thank you for not answering my prayers uh, and give me what I what I really wanted rather than yeah. what I thought I wanted. Um, and so, man, I can't even tell you how many times in my life that that has happened, where it's like, oh, I thought I wanted this, but man, God, you really are you really are smart. You know what you're doing. Hmm. So. You know, I was thinking, you know, the scripture talks about God giving us the desires of our heart, and man, a lot of times we hear people preach about that, and it sounds like, oh, well, God's going to give me all the things that I right. want. That is not what it says. Absolutely. It says that he'll give us the desire of our heart. Sometimes I don't even know what my heart's deepest desire is, yeah. right? Like, uh, 
you know, and, and really for us as followers of Christ, when, when the Holy Spirit does his work and regenerates our heart, right? When he changes us on the inside, the deepest desire of our heart is, is transformed, and it, it becomes, the deepest desire becomes knowing Christ, walking in him. And so when the scriptures say that God's going to give us the desire of our heart, what he's going to do is work in our lives so that we might grow in relationship with him, so that we might be made like him. And in doing that, we are satisfied. He gives us the desire of our heart. Problem is that oftentimes we don't know what that is because we we see a flashy thing and we think, oh well, I want that, mm-hmm. and that's that's not what we need at all. That's not really what our heart desires. That's not really what the deepest desire and the deepest longing of our soul is. And that's the thing that God will satisfy. And if we'll lean into that, then, then the promise of Scripture is that all of this other stuff. It loses its allure. It loses its glamour. It loses its value uh, because because we're willing, as Paul said, to to consider it loss mm-hmm. when compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ. Yeah, it's, it's dangerous the ease with which these things that we think we want, even if they're kingdom oriented, um, like let's say a church or a big platform, mm-hmm. the ease with which these things become idols mm-hmm. if they're given to us at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. One of the things we had a guest speaker here uh, this past week, Chad Williams, and he quoted a Christian philosopher. He didn't attribute the quote, but I believe the quote is attributable to Rav- Ravi Zacharias. Um, he said that um, that the loneliest moment in your life is when you acquire the ultimate thing that you wanted or you thought you need <laughs> needed and then you are left feeling empty in the mm-hmm. aftermath of it yeah. and so i want to think of that you can think of that as like the the definition of uh-oh like the wrong mm-hmm. way to do it and then the the opposite definition of that which todd is what, what what you've been sketching out here is that the most precious of discoveries for us is that is if we're able to come to a place where we discover that our fulfillment is in Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and once we know that, then all of the things, all of these other things are counted as lost. But if we don't, if we're given all of the things at the age that we yeah. you know, thought we wanted them, then I think that those things stand in the way of us making that discovery. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why the other definition exists. That's yeah. why people talk about it. That's why these things happen to people because they, those things become idols and they block yeah. our ability to make that discovery. And we have to make that discovery for ourselves. Well, you, you mentioned that Kim has talked about this idea in the past, and I think I can share this, but at our last church, I mean, Kim runs an incredible women's ministry here at Summit. I mean, it's legitimately incredible. And um, I mean, it's one of the most impactful ministries we have as far as reach and impact and footprint in our region, those kind of things. But at our last church, um, she there was a women's pastor on staff, and, um, and she was fine. She's a sweetheart. I love her. But she was not nearly as gifted or talented in just about any way as Kim is. And I'm not objective. I admit that. Um, her husband. So, um, but she was not as good a communicator. She was not as good a leader. Um, she had no attention to detail. I mean, it was just down the line. Kim was just head and shoulders, a better leader than this woman was, but this woman had seniority and she'd been there and Kim never got an opportunity to really lead there. And she's, she and I have talked about it before that she wanted to be able to speak and lead and all those kind of things. But, um, but God restrained her. And at the time it was really frustrating for her. I mean, we, I I remember having conversations and she was telling me things that they were doing in the women's ministry that I'm going, what in the world? That is the stupidest idea ever. But why, you know, like it was that kind of stuff. And there's this kind of righteous indignation, like we could be doing more if you were just right. And it sounds Mm -hmm. a little like Absalom, right? (laughs) Like in hindsight. Uh, But thank God she didn't get the opportunity because our hearts weren't ready for for that kind of influence. Uh, We were too immature. Kim was too immature at that point for that. Um, But that was a maturing season for her. So when the opportunity came for a platform that looked different than that platform, but... um, but when the time came, her heart was matured. It was ready. 
and she was ready to go. But man, if she would have gotten in the wrong season, it would have messed people up. It would have messed her up. It would have been it would have been yeah. problems all around. And I just think, man, God spares us because He loves us so much. When He says no, it's not punishment. It's not punitive, yeah. right? It's because He is. He's saying, I see things you don't see. Like when our kids ask for, uh, can I have chocolate pudding for breakfast? You're like, no, because I don't <laughs> want you to have diabetes in 15 years. Mm-hmm. Like, right? Yeah. Because I see things you don't see. I know things you don't know. So I'm not going to give you everything you want because it's not good for you. Yeah. Um, and it's not punishment. It's because we love them so much. Yeah. You raise an important point to remember, I think, um, because you're saying back when she had this opportunity that was denied her, she still had elevated competence back mm-hmm. then. And so a, a rejection or an inability yeah. to seize an opportunity is not fundamentally associated with your competence. Right. Always like it can't, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that's one of the mistakes that, um, a lot of prospective leaders make is that they think if they don't get to seize the opportunity or if they get rejected from an opportunity that it's because of their competence, yeah. but it's, it may not be, I mean, it may be, but it's, it, it it's, highly probable that if if other people recognize your competence and you recognize your competence that it's a god thing Mm -hmm. that it's being restrained for some other reason and so to just i think it's important for people to remember that so that they don't beat themselves up over it Mm -hmm. that kind of thing um and i think that that's just the idea that uh a person who's more competent for a role can be denied the role is a, is fascinating to think about because it opens up the door for all these other reasons that things might happen. And so, well, and that doesn't make sense in, in the business world, in the secular world, it doesn't make sense at all. You know, there's gotta be a nefarious reason, nepotism or whatever, <laughs> right? Oh, they're sleeping with a boss. That's why they have. Um, but in the kingdom of God, it makes a lot of sense. Cause we see that all throughout scripture that people who where the most advanced or the strongest or the best looking or whatever are bypassed for a number of reasons. Yeah. Because uh, really it comes back to our character. Uh, well, and even when they are selected, I mean, take David, for example, who was anointed king right when he was, what, yeah. 13? Uh, and then how many years of adversity did <laughs> David have to endure before he actually came into the kingdom, right? Um he had he had to learn to honor Saul when Saul wasn't really honorable. He had to hide in caves. He had to, you know, all of this stuff that he he, he had to go back to the fields after he was anointed. It was like right. now, now go back now to go the back out there and take yeah. care of the sheep, you know. And so like yeah, but we and we we don't want that seasoning. Yeah, we don't want that kind of. Uh, you know, we want to go straight to the palace. We can go yeah. straight to the throne. Uh, that's not good for us. It's not healthy for us. Uh, and our desire for and perceived need, it's not a true need, but we perceive it as a need. Our desire for and feeling of need for that position or that throne or that, right? You know, man, that is, a, that is a real, it's a poison. Mm-hmm. It's a poison and it will kill us. Well, and you yeah. see David's heart, um, you know, when he refused to kill Saul, even though he was anointed to be the next king, he still said, no, like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to dishonor God, even if it means promotion for myself. And um, If I kill this king, I better be ready for the person behind yeah. me to stab me right in the back. Bringing it back to Star Wars. That's the Sith right there. There you go. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> this is the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and we, we seem to know that when someone takes up a position of power or celebrity or wealth at a really young age and then they blow it because they weren't mature enough, it's not like people have your back in that moment either. Like people will turn on you when, when you do something like that. And so, I mean, they're, obviously you have your inner circle and yeah. all this, but that people will look at you and they'll say, Oh, he, he could have had it all. Why didn't he do like Saul's one of the most frustrating characters in the Bible to me when I'm reading about him. So I'm thinking like, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, mm-hmm. just, just stop. Yeah. Um, and that happens in life too. So, you know, like I think about, um, Antonio Brown is one of my favorite examples of mm-hmm. this. Like he's just at the peak of his craft and you know, he just melts down self-destructs. Yeah. And there, you know, there may be a, a an argument to be made for CTE there, but, uh, and you know, infirmity and this kind of thing. But, 
it's just an example of many people who mm-hmm. have ta- who have been given opportunities before they were ready for them and just collapse under it and it's n- people are n- not nice to you if you go through that like it's yeah. you know and so that you know we Todd you had said that we don't want this seasoning and I, that's true for sure like it's frustrating and it feels long and drawn out and unnecessary but i think it's worth it's worth it for young leaders to look at examples of people who have collapsed and mm-hmm. to see how much they don't want that. Yeah. And then yeah. maybe by comparison, it might help a little bit. I have preached. Um, I mean, I don't know how many times you've probably heard me preach about David in Adullam, um, you know, when he was in the cave, but it's one of the first messages I ever preached, but it's just stayed with me over the years. But I, one of the things that I've said in that is that David could, he was, he was disqualified from being, and leading in the the palace until he was willing to lead in the cave. And much to Todd's point, like we've got tons of people who want the palace but are unwilling to pursue God's calling in the unseen places, in the unglamorous places. And I don't think – I think that's what qualifies us to be able to lead in more visible places is when we're willing to lead in unseen places. That's when mm-hmm. God promotes us in whatever way. Maybe it's not to the big platform or the, but he promotes us in the kingdom to a place of higher influence or whatever it might be. So yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't disdain the cave. So I want to talk, I want to shift a little bit and talk about the tyranny of outcomes. Um, we'll, first, we'll explain what that idea is. And then I want to know um, what are some ways that you as a pastor find freedom from the tyranny of outcomes? And specifically... <laughs> are you asking somebody else? Because I would like to know. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah. Well, it'll be a, an exercise of exploration. Um, and then I also want to know what it is specifically that you believe about God. So what is it about your theology um, which assists you in your freedom from the tyranny of outcomes? Um, if you can point to something specific. So first, what is the tyranny of outcomes and why is it dangerous? Well, I think the tyranny of outcomes is that like, if I don't have, if I don't reach this goal, whatever it might be, then, then I have failed or if I do reach this goal, well, then there's always the next one, and 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 I, I don't want I don't want to like paint a picture as if goals aren't important and and goal you know they are. But what happens is that we we allow our sense of identity, our sense of mm-hmm. worth, our sense of whether or not God is pleased with us, all of that to get tied to those things in ways that make them idols, mm-hmm. and that's where the danger comes from. Yeah. I mean, good answer. Okay. I was actually going to see if uh, I could get the textbook definition, but yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think there's a lot of pastors that if, as they hear that, that resonates with them. Like, Oh man, like, Oh, that, that I, I feel that. Yeah. Um, man, we as pastors are the worst. Let's be honest because we want every weekend we're measuring like, cause I, I used to serve under a pastor who said, we don't measure nickels and noses around here. That's not who we are. Except I'm they like, took attendance of, and counted the offering every absolutely. week. Absolutely. I was like, and I knew <laughs> he would say that from the platform and I'd be like, you're full of crap because, uh, oh gosh, I gotta be careful because there was a weekend that my service was bigger than one of his services and it was not good. Um, yeah, yeah. we yeah. might have to edit this later, but, um, <laughs> but and the reason is because they count nickels and noses. He was like, that's what we're counting. And so the problem is that's for a lot of churches, that's all we count. So that's all we care about. And we live and die with that. So yeah. I see my numbers on Monday. Um, you know, I get a spreadsheet that has all the metrics we count. But um, but I'll take a look at that. And normally I'm, I'm healthy. I'm good. But like um, we're recording this the Tuesday um, – t- I guess the Tuesday after um, the second, well, well, so about 10 days after Easter, 10 days after Thank you for doing that math. (laughs) So we expect Easter to be big. It was, we had great attendance. It was about what I expected it to be. Um, And then judging on our weekend attendance this last weekend, it's always up for us because we do a guest speaker and different things. And the attendance was a little lower than what I expected, but it was still better than last year. But, 
I had this expectation. And so when I saw it, I had to battle that feeling yeah. in my yeah. heart to go, no, 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 no. We were still successful. Look how many people came to salvation in Christ right. Jesus. Look how, right? Yeah. So we all battle that. And it doesn't matter if you get 40 people in your church or if you've got 4,000 people in your church. It's a condition of our heart yeah. uh, because we want to measure ourselves and go, see, I'm good because I produced um, and see the outcomes. Like I must be validated or I must be in. Yeah. And yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. You know, I think it's always. I always go back to the parable of the talents with these kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. Because it seems to me that if we look at that, there is an expectation that the Lord places on us for what he's put in our hands, right? And so it's not that we shouldn't work for an outcome. It's not that we shouldn't have goals. It's not mm-hmm. that, in, in, you know, in fact, that if we look at that parable, like one of the things that is pleasing to the Lord is when those servants take it out, take those talents that he's given to them, take what's been placed in their hands and go out and multiply it. God is God honors them, right? He blesses them because of the the work that they've done and the outcome that's been achieved. So there's nothing wrong with having goals and expecting outcomes and working yeah. toward outcomes. Um, the the problem actually would come in number one if I thought that the master's love for that servant was based on that thing, right? Uh, which is the the one who the one who buried the talent? That's actually what he thought. Mm-hmm. What he thought was that the master's love for me is based on whether or not I can hold on to this thing he's given me. Mm-hmm. He was afraid he would lose, and so he took no risk at all. He did nothing at all except bury it. Right now, it's so so really he was the one who was motivated by a fear of loss. The the other servants, sure, they knew that you know that there was an expectation that the, that the the master had, but it seems to me that they were willing to risk the loss in order to be faithful to what they knew the master would want from them, and it was the one who was unwilling to take the risk who actually ends up you know being the one that the master condemns. Yeah, because the master doesn't, at the end of the day, the master doesn't need the talents. The master wants the faith. Like he wants the expression of faith out of the people. Yeah. And so, and that's, man, it's perfectly analogous to our relationship with Christ and all the rest. And so one of the things I think that is a danger here with the tyranny of outcomes is that it lays yourself, you you lay yourself open or vulnerable to circumstance and other people. And so circumstance, uh, I don't know very many occupations where the peak of your craft is at the end of your life. Like <laughs> yeah. I can't think of any, almost yeah. any of them. Like you're, you're just, you, you hit the peak and then it's a downhill climb, hopefully a slow one if you live a long life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a decline. Mm-hmm. And so if your um, self-worth and your value and your sense of being loved is tied up in your craft, then that's going to decline with your life. And that's not a pleasant way to finish out your days, I would imagine. Um, and then the other issue is, okay, well, what, what if I say, okay, yes, it's true that I'm not going to be able to stay at my peak to the end of my life, but at least I'll be able to retire with a legacy. Well, who's going to handle your legacy? Because yeah. then we get into Ecclesiastes and this idea of passing things uh-huh. down and then it being spoiled by somebody else. And so like, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to invest your self-worth in the hands of another human. Like that's a dangerous idea itself. Yeah. And so. All of those things, I think, are associated with the tyranny of outcomes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you were talking about legacy, Joshua said at the end of his life, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's like literally the, not his kids, but his grandkids were not serving the Lord. Yeah. It's like, this takes us to the book of Judges. And it's like, oh, yeah. holy yeah. crap. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, and that's where that's where our, uh, man, our Western view of church We've got to be really careful with it because there are some things I think we get really right and we do really well. And then there's some things, like I mentioned earlier, with our obsession with attendance on a weekend that is really unhealthy. And I think there's some value in a church attendance. Like, sure, it helps us understand some things. But, man, I'm not kidding. Um, 
I've got friends that they live and die with the numbers they get. And they don't even wait till Monday or Tuesday to get their numbers. They want to know them on Sunday. Like at the end of service, they want to be handed the the attendance numbers. Yeah. And um and that's that's the problem for our heart because you know, we're talking about the parable of the talents. The the problem with the servant who buried the talent is he misjudged what would please the master. Yeah. And this is part of the problem with us when we are tied so our hearts are tied so tightly, closely to attendance numbers, for instance, is that we are misjudging what pleases the master. Like, okay, God's going to be happy with this. Uh, or maybe not. Maybe we don't care. And maybe it's more about what makes us happy. Yeah. That ooh, that might be another mm-hmm. podcast. But, but at the end of the day, that's the problem with that is we have so badly misjudged the character and heart of the master that we are successful at the wrong things, you know, we're, we're, Hey, I'm building this big church. I'm building these people that love to hear me preach, but do they love Jesus? Yeah. Are, are they growing in their affection for the Lord or do they just think you're entertaining? Like, are you the, the next stop for a while until something else catches their attention? You you mentioned the shiny things. So, yeah. You know, and I mean, there's a, look, one of the, one of the criticisms that's levied against really large churches uh, and it's not always unfounded. Sometimes it is. But one of the criticisms is that we're really good at gathering a large number of people, but not so good at discipling people. Mm-hmm. And there's some truth to that, you know, and, and and that doesn't mean it has to be the case. But if we are measuring just those things like weekend attendance and, and the, the numbers in the offering and that kind of thing, and we are not giving attention to are people truly growing in their faith? Are people right. becoming more like Jesus? Well, then then we have, you know, well, we're measuring the thing that's, that's really least important, yeah. right? To the expense of the one that is truly important. And it's not that we don't want to measure weekend attendance and the offering and all those kind of things. We, we do, right? Um, but, but not at the expense of, yeah. of the weightier thing. So it seems like the best way, one of the best ways to protect against the tyranny of outcomes is to be clear in your understanding of the purpose of measurements and goals. And so yeah. let me make a quick definition and I'll see if you agree with it. The purpose of goals, the purpose of measurements is to establish a direction for movement and that's it. Like it's, it's, it really, it's like, cause you have to make choices, right? Mm-hmm, you can't go mm-hmm. in all different directions at the same time. If you want to go out to eat, you can't go to all the restaurants in the same night. Right. Um, but so you need to know how to move forward. And in, in order to move forward, you have to rule out a bunch of other things. So you have to exclude a bunch of other things and the goals or the measurements help inform your construction of a direction. And so if you do something in ministry and it just absolutely flops, like it's the, the measurements aren't hitting yeah. the marks, your definition of success hasn't been met, all of those things, that gives you indications that you're heading in a yeah, direction you shouldn't stimulus. be going. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a it's a compass, right? Like the mm-hmm. goals, they're an orienting reflex. And if we can look at them as that and only that, because here's the thing. <clears throat> most I think most church leaders would agree with you when you say that it's not that we don't need to measure these things. We need to mm-hmm. measure these things. And so then they'll measure the things. Yeah. But if they don't know why they're measuring it, it can yeah. creep in. It can yeah. start to creep in week to week. Yeah, there's a difference between the necessity of outcomes and the tyranny of outcomes. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, we, it is necessary for us to, to work for outcomes. You're going to get an outcome either way. Right, intentionally or unintentionally, <laughs> or unintentionally. there's yeah. going to be an outcome. Yeah. You know, you might as well push for the one you want. <laughs> you know, the, right. so, but the tyranny of outcomes and being free from the tyranny of outcomes is really about knowing the heart of the Father. Yeah, and resting in the heart of the Father. I want my girls to succeed in every arena of life, mm-hmm. and. I want them to be so secure in my love for them that if they don't achieve a single one of them, they know that they are enough for their daddy, you know? And and so in that way, I want them to be free from the tyranny of outcomes. You know, athletes talk about the idea of playing free. And especially if you talk to, to athletes who are believers, they'll talk about how that... 
rooting their identity in Christ actually helped them to become a better player because because then they were free from this idea of if I don't perform well in yeah. this game yeah I then, am what I do yeah yeah and we're we're just as prone to that as pastors and mm-hmm. as 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 church leaders and we have to we have to let go of that well when you were talking about the uh, parable of the talents uh, a thought crossed my mind um and, and when Jesus told the story, he didn't include this. So this is some ice Jesus instead of this is not good <laughs> biblical interpretation. But my, my thought was, I wonder if the guys who risk something, if they would have lost it, what the master would have done. Um, because my my gut tells me the master um, may not have been happy about the loss, but he also probably wouldn't have cast them into the outer darkness. Yeah. Uh, like the servant who buried the talent. That's what I suspect as well. Because uh, there was an understanding of the master's heart. Like, okay, I know what you want and I'm going to, I'm going to attempt that, but I might fail. And even if I fail at doing what you want, it's better than totally misunderstanding what you want and doing something else entirely. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I think it does. It comes back to the father's heart and understanding. Okay, what does what does God really want? And I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be faithful to do what God wants, even if I fail at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I at least I'm failing at something that God wants me to do, rather than um, building a kingdom that God never asked me to build. Yeah, yeah. So infirmity is not the same thing as disobedience. Yeah, in that context. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think we could do a whole other podcast about that, but we have come up on an hour here, so we're going to wrap this up. This is a great place to end it. Mel, Todd, thank you guys for uh, doing this. And Hey, let me say one thing, too. Don't forget, we got the Back 40 um, conference coming up in August, so make sure you mark your calendar August 4th and 5th at uh, Summit Church in Indiana, PA. We'll also have uh, options to stream that live, so if you're listening to this somewhere throughout the U.S. or even the world, uh, feel free. You can register at our website, back40.network, back40.network. You are listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.